Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This week, we are going to discuss creating a course book, and we have the person I think is most qualified in the whole world to talk about that, and that's Brian Tomlinson, professor of TESOL, Anaheim University. Brian wrote his first course book with Rod Ellis back in the 1960s, and he's been involved in materials design ever since then, and we're very lucky to have him on the podcast. Hi, Brian. Hello. So, Brian, first of all, why bother writing a good course book? What, what difference can a good course book make? What, what a good course book can do is provide the teacher and the learners with potentially engaging texts. And, it, and in fact, that's what teachers said in my another survey I did for a publisher of what they wanted from a course book. And the number one requirement was stimulating texts. Because what, what they said was, if we have a stimulating text, then we can devise activities ourselves, we can adapt the activities to suit our students, etc. If the texts are not engaging, then there's very little we can do with it. And is there such a thing as a good course book? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. When you said, is there a good course book? I, th- I, th- I think there is. Uh, there's a book called On Target, which was written in Namibia in Southwest Africa. Mystery was unsatisfied with the course book, which was published in the UK and wasn't particularly relevant or wasn't relevant at all to students in Namibia. Uh, So I was employed as an advisor to the project and we got 30 teachers together from all over the country. And in six days, we wrote a new course book. And the 30 teachers were divided into 10 groups, three in a team. And their brief was, forget the syllabus, go and find an interesting text. And I had taken a library of uh, videos, um, poems, stories, newspapers, magazines, audios, songs. And they were told, find a text which you think will be affectively and cognitively engaging for 16-year-old students. And then they based their unit on this using this text-driven approach, which I developed for that project and have used ever since. And they found some very, very engaging texts. And interestingly, if you have an engaging text, ideas come to you on how to exploit it creatively and interestingly. So it's not a perfect course book by any means, but it's it's the best. And what, what happened was most of the teachers were Namibians, but one was from Norway. And she was so inspired by this. When she went back to Norway, she became a publisher and she actually commissioned two writers to write a similar book for Norwegian secondary schools. And that is probably the best course book I've ever seen, using a lot of contemporary world literature in English and taking big risks with topics like it tackled apartheid and and all sorts of very provocative and emotive topics which uh, a British publisher wouldn't touch. You mentioned there, Brian, effective engagement. Can you just tell us what what do you mean by effective engagement? So I'm defining affective quite broadly as so humour would be affective, anger would be affective, excitement, um, disturbance. So some of the things we normally consider negative would be affective engagement. So you've collected all these texts. How can you make sure that students learn something useful from a course book like the one you just described, created using text? Um... 
what, what we found was in this Namibian example, it doesn't really matter. Providing you, what, what the brief was, the text should be language rich and they should use a variety of genres and text types. And I, I told them to ignore the syllabus. But every night I went back to my hotel and I put the syllabus on the wall. And I did a matching exercise between what they produced that day and what was in the syllabus. And after five days, I, we covered 90% of the syllabus without trying because it's naturally occurring. If the syllabus is of any value, it will be of those lexical items and structures which are significant for communication. There, was, there were two categories, really, those which have been given um, explicit attention to and those which were occurring and therefore were available for implicit learning. And uh, what I did was we had a ministry official at the workshop with us. So I told him this and I said, look, these are the things we haven't covered. How important do you think they really are? And of that 10%, about 4%, he agreed, should not be in the curriculum because they were, they were trivial, they were not significant, they didn't often occur, the students didn't need them. You know, things like the third conditional, which native speakers hardly ever use. These were 16-year-old kids. So we deleted those from the curriculum. And uh, the, the remaining ones, on the last day, I, I, I pointed this out to the teachers and I asked them if they could naturally incorporate them into their units without disrupting their authenticity. And that's what they did. So we ended up covering the curriculum without trying to, but we had engaging texts. If you do it the other way around, which course books normally do, you, you, as I've just said, Unit 12 Past Perfect, you've got to find an engaging text with a lot of past perfects. It's almost impossible. That's really interesting. It reminds me of what is uh, very commonly spoken about now in, in general education, which is this idea of interleaving practice, where students don't just practice one thing at one time. They mix up things that they're practicing. And I think maybe that's one of the other reasons why that approach could be so successful with students, is that it exposes them to all these different aspects of language, and, and they're being interleaved with each other. You mentioned the text-driven approach there. C can you tell us what is that? Okay. What this text-driven approach does is to start from the proven assumption that learners are actually meaning-focused. They're not form-focused, they're meaning-focused. And language acquisition is meaning-focused. So what you're doing is you're going for a meaning-focused, form-focused approach. The learners are engaged in understanding and communicating meaning, but at some point will focus on the language they use to achieve this. So, so for example, if you've got an engaging text, the first thing we did with it was what we call a readiness activity to connect it to their lives. So if the text is a poem first day at school, the readiness activity asks them to think back to their own first day at school. And they go through a visualization activity where they see pictures of themselves getting ready to go to school, on the way to school, arriving at school, meeting the teacher, meeting the students, etc. They, they start out in the unit having activated their minds in relation to their own lives. You have personalized the unit before it starts. Then they experience the text 
and, and notice I'm using the word experience and not study. Typically, learners of a foreign language study any text they're given. And they are told, for example, read the following text and answer the questions below. So immediately they're anxious, they're being tested. So they will, they will microprocess the text. They will decode every word. And if they don't know a word, they'll, they'll get out the dictionary. Uh, and as a result, they might understand all the words, but they don't understand the text. But because the comprehension questions tend to focus on words or sentences rather than the whole text, they get quite a good mark on the comprehension test. Um, they haven't developed any reading skills. <laughs> they haven't acquired any language. So what, what we do is they experience the text. They're told, don't worry, no comprehension questions, no test. And they're encouraged to visualize as they read, because this is what we do in the first language. But most learners in the second language, their, their natural visualization is inhibited by their need to understand every word, and they translate. So it's a question of training them to experience rather than study. And, and then there's a personal response to the text, how they interpret it, how they represent it, what it means to them whether they agree with what he said, etc., which again represents the reality of reading. When we read, that's what we do. We question the text. We connect it to our lives. We, we don't look at bits of language. Uh, and therefore, the, it's open-ended. There are no right answers. You can't mark it. But after that, they then do focus on a particular language feature of the text, something salient in the text, something that stands out as being significant in the text. Because salience is one of the criteria for acquisition. If, for example, um, a, a present perfect, which is not a marked form, and you don't normally get in clusters, is suddenly used four or five times, then this is an indication of salience. It's important to understand the function of the present perfect at that point. And they're asked to focus on it and make discoveries for themselves rather than being receiving explicit teaching about the structure. It's explicit learning because they're focusing consciously and they're making discoveries and they're articulating the discoveries. quite a lot about how second language acquisition research can help us design course books and, and something on that topic I've seen you write about is the use of students inner voice C can you tell us a little bit about what the inner voice is and how teachers and, and course book writers can make use of that the reality is the person we talk to most in our life is, is ourselves and we, are, we are talking to ourselves all day long using the inner voice so, so you don't actually, your, your articulators approximate the, the position if you were going to use the external voice, but you don't actually articulate. So your tongue actually moves. And they found if they inhibit the tongue, they, they did this in Russia where they tied the tongue down and, and got people to read a text and they, and they couldn't use the inner voice because the tongue was tied down and therefore they couldn't remember the text. Because normally when we read silently, we're actually reading with our inner voice. You hear it in your head and then we talk to ourselves about it. So we use the inner voice for two things. One is to 
rehearse something we are reading or have read or we are listening to or have listened to and the other is to talk to ourselves about it that's how we understand you know we read something and we think i don't think i agree with that but why does he say that you're actually saying those words to yourself you don't realize it you're not aware of it a lot of people say i don't do it but everybody does it <laughs> if you don't do it it is actually considered to be a mental disorder there are some people who, who can't use it they're in a voice and they have a mental handicap and they, they can't can't remember things that they've read so another important example of that is one of my phd students from vietnam did his research on reticence in the classroom vietnam students typically don't talk in the english lesson and he asked the teachers why was this so and they came up with the usual clichés about the uh, asian loss of face they don't want to lose face they don't want to appear silly in front of their peers or they were lazy or they were ignorant <laughs> and they blamed the students and the students said the teacher asked a question and i'm just working out an answer in my head so they're using the inner voice to compose an answer and then the teacher demands the answer too soon i am dead time to to prepare it and we use the inner voice for that as well if we if we're going to say something in a classroom we compose it first in the head using the inner voice and uh, what he then did was with tense teachers he got them to wait 8 seconds in between asking a question and asking for an answer and he stopped them from nominating students so only the students who were ready would compose an answer in their head then responded and that simple procedure made a massive difference in interaction in the classroom it got rid of reticence in the classroom so he's now written a book on this which he's called but on my desk silence the english classroom telling like that he's got a whole book on it with with chapters from various people's research on the value of silence Brian, thanks very much for coming on. If listeners want to learn more about your readings on creating materials, well, what's the best place for them to look for that? Uh, certainly, the book, which does actually have most of what I've been saying in it, is a very ambitious book which was published last year, which I wrote with my wife Itomi Masahara, and it, it's called very ambitiously and pretentiously. A complete guide to the theory and practice of materials development for language learning. Great, and thanks again very much, Brian, for for coming on. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, okay, thanks, Laura. Yeah. For more podcasts, videos, and blogs, visit our website www.tefotraininginstitute.com. If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at Tefo Training Institute. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm.